0: We start off the personal Jesus episode with a tale, a story about a mysterious someone or something living in the woods, the kind of story that's been passed on from generation to generation. The only thing is, this one, this might be true. Snap producer Joe Rosenberg takes it from here.
1: So this story takes place on the shores of a lake, about an hour's drive inland from the main coast, called the North Pond. The North Pond isn't big, maybe a mile long, half a mile wide, and like a lot of lakes in the area, there aren't many folks who live there year-round.
2: A lot of people have what they call camps, and uh, these are like very small cabins, and it goes on for generations and generations.
1: This is Mike Finkel. He's a journalist, and he's going to be a big part of this story. You'll see why in just a little bit. But he says that back in the 80s, in these cabins on the pond, 86, 87, things started to go missing. Little things.
2: Some people are missing some steaks in the freezer. Some people are missing beer. Some people are missing propane tank. There's no damage.
1: And just around that time, when a rash of break-ins might normally stop, they don't.
2: Yet nothing of extreme value is taken. So people are wondering, it's like, is this like a practical joke? So there's some teenagers around. One guy thinks maybe it's my own son. Some people think maybe maybe I'm just being forgetful.
1: And then the next year, when they come back to the cabins, there's been more thefts.
2: And people get a little freaked out. Please say, we've gotten a bunch of calls. We're going to catch them soon. Nobody gets caught. People start reinforcing their cabins, trying to lock their windows with better locks.
1: But it doesn't work. The thief, whoever he is, whoever they are, they get around all the security systems.
2: This goes on for another year another year. A decade goes by,
1: and over time people start to notice patterns.
2: I'm only missing chunky peanut butter, not creamy. I'm only missing briefs, never my boxer shorts. I'm only missing uh, Budweiser, never Bud Light. Every homeowner seems to get to know this person.
1: Well enough to know that whoever they are, the one thing they clearly aren't interested in is money. Always it's just food, clothes, supplies. Necessities.
2: So. One summer, someone decides, you know, I'm going to put a piece of paper outside and a pen, and I'm going to leave a note. And the note's going to say, just tell me what you need, and I'll leave it out for you. And people think, this is a great idea. And at least half a dozen people leave these offerings to this mystery, and none of them were ever touched. No, no list was ever written, and the break-ins continued.
1: Another decade went by, and the break-ins eventually numbered over a 1,000. Children who inherited the cabins from their parents also inherited the thefts. It was like part of the scenery.
2: And kind of like the way a myth gets formed at barbecues or around a campfire, people just decided, we're going to explain this by saying we have a hermit in the woods. And they gave him a name, the North Pond Hermit.
1: Of course... Most cabin owners, when pressed, would say they didn't actually believe that the North Pond Hermit was a real thing. It was more like the legend was a coping mechanism, a way to explain the unexplainable. But then, one night, early in the spring in 2013, 27 years after the thefts had begun.
2: A man was caught at the pine tree camp, stealing food. He's clean-shaven, his hair is neatly cut, his clothes seem clean does not seem like a person who'd spent 27 years in the woods.
1: But the man was acting strange. He refused to make eye contact, and he wasn't speaking, and not in a a you-have-a-right-to-remain-silent kind of way. It was as if he was incredibly shy.
2: Finally, uh, an officer named Diane Vance sits alone with the man, and about two hours after his capture, the man starts to talk.
1: The man told the officer that he was the thief, the one everyone had been looking for. And yes, he did in fact live in the woods. He says he
2: never slept indoors. He says he never lit a fire. He says he never touched anybody. He says that everything he owns is stolen, except for perhaps his eyeglasses. He says he one time in 27 years encountered one person on a trail and said one syllable,
1: hi. Of course, the officer was skeptical. It all seemed a little far-fetched. But then the man mentioned that he had gone to high school not far away. So someone rushed out and brought back an old yearbook containing a class photo of a boy named Christopher Knight.
2: But he says it's sort of hard to tell who it is. He says he hasn't seen an image of himself in 27 years. But he had his glasses up on his head, and he slides them back on his nose to take a more focused look at the picture. And it's then that it seems to be clear. That the guy in the yearbook and the guy who'd just been arrested 27 years later are wearing the same pair of glasses.
1: A main legend described as the North Pond Hermit has been arrested. State officials say the North Pond Hermit was considered a myth, a legend, because no one had ever seen him. Our top story tonight, a guilty plea from the man known around the world as the North Pond Hermit. Overnight, the most isolated man in the world who just wanted to be left alone Became the most famous person in Maine. 27 years ago,
2: he went into the woods.
1: This song you're hearing, it was written in his honor. Journalists, documentary crews, ordinary people, they all came to the jail hoping to speak with him. But Christopher Knight was accepting no visitors.
0: Even after months of publicity, no one's really heard or
1: seen from the North Pond Hermit. And that's left people to wonder why he did this in the
0: first place and what's next. We don't know what the North Pond Hermit knows. No, we don't know what the North Pond Hermit
1: knows. Which brings us back to our journalist, Mike. Mike says that when he first read about the North Pond Hermit, he was tempted to just dismiss it as the human interest story of the week. Nothing worth his time. But
2: what shifted my interest was a little tidbit in the article that said he stole hundreds, perhaps thousands, of books. And somehow that that got ingrained in me. And my first reaction wasn't pick up the phone or I want to talk to him. My first thought was I should write this man a
1: letter. And Mike admitted his chances of getting a response were low. Uh,
2: probably a little bit higher than zero, but not much.
1: But he said he thought he had one small advantage. Kind of old-fashioned.
2: But it works. Nobody writes handwritten letters anymore. Even, even, people have actually written back to me to say, thanks for the letter, no, I can't talk to you because they're so surprised.
1: And sure enough, eight days later, Christopher Knight, who had not responded to any request out of hundreds of requests... Responded to Mike.
2: I have the whole thing right here. You want to hear some of it? First paragraph, what do you think? Mike Finkel. There's no dear, no salutation. Just says, Mike Finkel, comma. Received your letter, obviously. Like you, I too enjoy communicating by letter. Best choice for me, as my vocal, verbal skills have become rather rusty. And then it goes on a little bit and says, I don't know you. So any letter from me to you would be of innocuous content. If you would like to write me, don't expect much in return, but I will read your letter. I wince at the rudeness of this reply, but I think it better to be clear and honest rather than polite. Tempted to say nothing personal, but handwritten letters are always personal, whatever the content. You took a chance and this is the result. Pleased? Disappointed? Not quite sure. And that's the way he ends it. And I'd say within 30 minutes of me reading that letter, three or four times over, I had taken out my pen and
1: wrote back to him. In the letters that followed, Knight revealed almost nothing about his life in the woods. And he never promised that he'd send another letter. But invariably, he did. He said that the correspondence helped alleviate some of the boredom of jail. Meanwhile, Mike was growing enamored with Knight's prose style. He had an incredible way of writing all his own, from having no interaction with actual human beings, but nevertheless reading thousands of books over the course of 30 years.
2: And it was fascinating and vivid and poetic and droll, dryly humorous. And, uh, and there was, it was that feeling when it came to intellectual ability. I was like, wow, this guy is just
1: smarter than me. And Mike noticed something else. Although Knight was guarded in his writing, when he wasn't being guarded, he was being brutally honest. He either wrote nothing at all or the unvarnished truth.
2: And the letters I received, if you read them back to back, are this heartbreaking mental breakdown, basically. One of the things he said, you know, is more damage had been done to his mental health in a couple of months in jail than two and a half decades in the woods. And this is the last line of his last letter to me. And he's talking about not knowing how long he's going to be locked up. And it's sort of, he, he does have a really poetic sense of writing. He says, uh, stress levels sky high. Next time I meet with a lawyer, I'm going to pin him down. Give me a number. How long? Months? Years? Tell me the worst. How long? Still tired. More tired. Tireder. Tiredest. Tired ad nauseum. Tired infinitum becoming more silent. No more from me. Thank you for writing. It gave me comfort and relief and release. Signed, your friendly neighborhood hermit, Christopher Knight. And that was the first time he used his name, was the last two words he ever wrote me.
1: After that, Mike wrote three more letters to but Knight never wrote back.
2: And I decided... To fly to Maine, having no idea if he would see me, but figuring that uh, at least I would show up and see.
1: Mike wrote Knight one more letter to tell him he'd be coming. And just like before, Knight didn't write back. But Mike went anyway. He didn't even have a plan, really. He just showed up at the jail, gave his name to the front desk, and waited to see what would happen. Then a guard came out and ushered him into a room. I I walk into the room
2: and it was dimmer and so it took my eyes a few seconds to sort of figure it out and I looked through the glass and saw that actually someone was on the other side of the glass and it was Christopher Knight. And, you know, even when two strangers meet each other, there's acknowledgement, there's a nod, there's all the silent communication that humans have.
1: Here, there was nothing. Chris Knight wasn't really looking at him. He was looking slightly off to the left. Their eyes never met. The only thing that was clear was that Knight was not pleased to see him.
2: And uh, I had a whole list of questions. I think I even printed them out of my computer and stuck them in my back pocket. There were probably three pages. And within like 10 seconds, I knew that that wasn't going to work. And he talked about his in his letters, possibly in every letter, about silence. And not liking people that are babbling. But I thought about that. And against all my instincts to talk, I was like, let's just be quiet
1: for a little while. Which, if you're staring directly at someone and there's absolutely nothing else going on in the room, is really hard to do. So
2: I would say I lasted, I am telling you, an unnaturally long period of time, possibly longer than I've ever just sat in front of someone silently in my life, which is more than a minute, but certainly less than three, but a really long time um, for me. And finally it was like this moment of calm and, and I see him move the phone receiver closer to his mouth and he says to me, you know, some people want me to be this warm and fuzzy person just spouting off fortune cookie lines from my hermit home. And I was like, I'm, I'm gonna play along. I was like, uh, you're hermit home, like under a bridge. And he sort of slid his eyes over. It's like, you disappoint me. And he said to me, uh, you're thinking of a troll.
1: After that, the conversation started to move forward. Although to say it moved swiftly would be misleading. Chris continued to avoid eye contact. He said there was just too much information in the face. Too much, too fast. So for the rest of the visit, they deliberately looked over each other's shoulders.
2: We spoke haltingly. Uncomfortably, We never really achieved any true, what we would call banter. And I was like, this is, uh, I should not be here. This was the only hour that Chris would be able to put up with.
1: But Mike thought he might have one in with Chris, a kind of agreement, or a trade maybe.
2: I had uh, told him, I'm going to write about you. You're not going to be able to have any control over what I'm going to write. I was very open and blunt about it. I think Chris Knight read the situation like this, that he would be hounded forever for his story, or he could tell it to one person and then retreat. So when I saw the jail guard come in to escort him out, I said, uh, Chris, can I come visit you again? And he's not looking at me, about to hang up the phone, he just says... He accepted nine of my visits, and I visited nine times. He never said no.
1: Over the course of those nine visits, Chris told Mike the story of how he became a hermit. It wasn't planned exactly or inspired by anything. He said his childhood, for the most part, was pretty normal. Good parents, loving siblings. But he was always a loner, never liked people that much. And at 20
2: years old, suddenly, like, as if he was like, I've had enough, he quit his job. No two weeks warning, Didn't even return his tools, according to one of a family friend. Just sort of left.
1: And uh, he took a road trip. Chris didn't go see any attractions or taking a show. He just drove south, stuck to the interstate, and ate at fast food restaurants. Sometimes he would pull over by the side of the highway and watch the world go by from behind his windshield. No interaction. No activity. When he got to Florida, he simply turned around and started driving back north.
2: And by this point... It was clear that somewhere on this road trip north, something came to him. He's like, I'm going to try something. It's not normal, and I don't care. He ended up driving into Maine right by his house. But he never stopped, went through his tiny little town, Drives not just into rural Maine but northern Maine, which is miles and miles and miles away from anything. And as he describes to me, he basically like drives it through underbrush until his car can go no further. And he stops and he leaves his keys behind in the car and closes the door. He has like a tent and a backpack and really not that much food, no maps, no compass. Probably not really enough clothing, and just walks away
1: did you ask him though like about when he stepped into the woods that first time? did he know where he was like on a map?
2: i mean <laughs> that's that's the that's the type of question that uh, Chris Knight would give you like a little bit of a long blink like. Yeah. He was on planet Earth, he was in the state of Maine, he was in the woods, like, do you need more? Uh, So not exactly, but didn't really matter.
1: Chris wandered through the forest, generally heading back south. When he reached the North Pond, he didn't know what it was called, or even precisely where it was at first. Nevertheless, he set about finding a spot where he could hide full time. He tried seven locations over the course of two years, before he found the one where he would stay for the next 25. The camp was almost perfectly hidden. Just ask Mike. Because when he wasn't interviewing Chris, he was trying to find it. And no, Chris wasn't about to tell him.
2: And I've walked in a lot of woods in my life, and I have never seen woods thicker than the woods of central Maine, where Chris Knight lived. It's not just these skinny little trees with branches, it's these boulders that are just stacked everywhere. It is impossible to move through. I was sliced to bits, there's poison ivy, there's thorns, there's bugs, and I was so disoriented. I went back and forth four, five, six times, and I fell and hit my head really hard against a rock and was very worried that I was gonna knock myself out. But I wanted to find this site. And finally I step between these big boulders and it's like, boom, I'm in like a room. Like 20 feet by 20 feet, like a living room. But heaven has a ceiling. Tree branches are linked overhead and it's perfectly flat. And I'm sitting here in this room and every the whole forest is around me. And I'm telling you within moments, it immediately relaxed me and I could completely understand why Chris Knight was drawn there.
1: Chris's camp was somehow in the forest and yet completely apart from it at the same time. Mike could hear the sound of the wind in the trees without feeling a chill. He could see out into the woods without being seen. And everything had its place in that way that only happens in a home that's been truly lived in. Chris had hung objects on the trunks of trees and the trunks had grown around them. There was a mushroom growing out of another tree, which Chris told Mike he had watched sprout and expand over the course of the seasons. Although, like so many things in Chris's life, He couldn't tell Mike exactly how old it was.
2: Years had absolutely no importance to him. It's just the season, the moon, the temperature. And he never, ever, ever was lonely or bored. Just sitting there quietly was extremely entertaining to him.
1: Did he ever talk to himself?
2: Of course I asked him that question. He thought that that was an absurd question. Never once, never one word, and I believe him. Okay, what about a journal? Never wrote one word down. He did a couple of crossword puzzles. He thought that everyone who wrote a book or took a picture or painted something or wrote a poem, all they were doing is thinking about an audience because that's constructing something for someone else to read or even yourself at a later date, which doesn't even exist if you're living in the here and now. It was absurd to him to write
1: something down. Most of the time. Chris told Mike he didn't even really have a sense of self. He just kind of was what he sensed. The forest. Sounds around him. Nature. But at the same time, it shocked Mike when he finally found the site to realize how close it was. As hard as it had been to find, the nearest cabin was just a three-minute walk away.
2: Like, you could could easily hear, you know, uh, canoeists talking to each other. You hear dogs bark. You hear cars crunching over gravel. And... You know, Knight was very, very close to civilization and never felt the need to return.
1: But why do you think that is exactly? Like, why not occasionally go into town or, or check in with his family?
2: I think the reason is he just had that sort of mind where he decided what the rules were. And like a sort of Buddhist monk, <laughs> just realized that he would sooner die
1: than break these rules. Every single aspect of Chris Knight's life was built around the principle of non-interaction. Not having to see anyone or be seen, and not leaving any evidence of his existence. And if you think that this is just some kind of game he was playing with himself, that he could stop at any time, so he was just a loner having fun in the woods, consider what he put himself through in winter.
2: What Chris Knight told me he did in winter is a feat of survival. One- There's snow, you leave tracks in the snow. He made it a rule that he wouldn't leave tracks. So he did not leave the confines of his space for six months. The second thing is uh, smoke would give his campsite away. So he did not have a fire, not once.
1: And just to be clear, if he didn't have a fire when it was negative 20 degrees, which happened all the time, it didn't matter how many blankets he had. Chris if he tried to sleep, would freeze to death.
2: But he realized that what you do in the depth of cold, at the coldest of all cold, and he, I think, calculated that to be about 2.30 in the morning, you get up, you get out of bed, and you walk in circles around your sight. So I'm just picturing him doing this. And I can't imagine the self-control that Chris Knight had, like, How could you live so close to someone and be so cold or hungry? He nearly died of starvation, of hypothermia, and warmth was
1: right there. Right there, three minutes away, and he never, never went. Mike didn't see how anything could be worth that kind of suffering. And I said
2: something to the effect of, it sounds like winter was just horrible. And he said to me, no. His very favorite moments took place in the dead of winter, and there was no bugs, there are no birds, no wind, there's no leaves on the trees, there is true silence. And he said that it was that state that he felt stillness. And he said he craved that, and he was very hungry and very cold, but he needed to suffer like
1: that in order to feel the joy. At the same time, winter was the one thing that marred Chris's hermitage. Because in order to survive the winter, if he really wanted to hold fast to his rules and not leave the forest, he needed to stockpile food. And for that, he couldn't hunt or fish. He had to steal. And he was proud of a lot of things.
2: But when he was talking about stealing, you could see him sort of shrink in front of you in some sort of way. He was ashamed of himself. So... He never broke into a home that wasn't a second home. He never broke a pane of glass. If he picked a lock on your front door and took your hamburger meats and your, and your flashlight, he was very careful to make sure that he locked your front door bef- and closed it and made sure it was shut tight because he didn't want anybody to break into your house. He detested the fact that he had to steal.
1: Yeah, but in that case, why didn't he fill out the shopping list that people left for him? Like, wouldn't that have fixed the problem?
2: Chris saw these notes, as he told me, and he realized that writing down a shopping list is a form of communication. You start writing something down, and then you now have a relationship with this person. He'd rather die than have a connection. That's a connection. But if he ever thought I was romanticizing his thing too much, he would be like, don't do that. You know, you have to take the good. You have to take the bad. He never thought that he didn't deserve to be in jail. He knew what he was doing was wrong.
1: Court system was surprisingly sympathetic when it came to Chris's crimes. They decided that none of the usual penalties quite applied in his case, that they should focus instead on reintroducing him to society. After 7 months in jail, he was about to be released.
2: And suddenly he had to get a job, he had to do community service, he was going to have to interact with the rest of the world, but he could sort of see the absurdity of everything. You can see the absurdity of a man spending 27 years in the woods, and you could also see the absurdity of not spending 27 years in the woods. And you said things like, you know, from what I've seen from my position in jail of, you know, he kept calling it your world. It's been really disappointing to me, just filled with colors and ridiculous aspirations, and I couldn't disagree with most of it.
1: So Mike was pleasantly surprised when, after his release, all the counselors and court officials said that Chris was doing really well showing up at court dates, getting a part-time job at his brother's business, attending to his family, a model parolee. Mike even went to visit him at his family's home in central Maine. And he says that when he got there, when Chris greeted him, he looked like a totally normal guy, baseball cap, work boots, a member of society. And Knight
2: indicated with his hand to come follow him. He's like, gave me a very welcoming gesture, which was extremely surprising. And we stood under this tree, pretty close to each other, didn't touch each other. And we had the most, in fact, the only, real, emotional, truly human conversation that I ever had with Chris Knight. I said, how you doing? And I thought that he would tell me that he was doing great. And Chris never wanted to beat around the bush. And not one to lie to me said, not well.
1: Chris explained that his good performance in front of his counselors and his family was just a shell game. That in reality, he was doing terribly. He found every human interaction hopelessly awkward. All the normal goals and milestones of human life totally meaningless. He felt no one really understood him. And the longer he spent in society, the more the pressure was building in him to escape again. To go back to the woods.
2: And then now he turned to me with his very, and he held eye contact for just a couple of seconds, which is startling for Chris, and asked me a very personal question about himself, which he had never done before. He said, Am I crazy? And of course I had thought a lot about that. And I said to him, No, I don't think you're crazy. And then he asked me a very odd question. And he says, uh, what do you think I'm talking about when I say the lady of the woods? I said, oh, the lady of the woods, you're talking about Mother Nature. And he said, no, I'm talking about death. And he had expressed to me a few times during our jail meetings that in the depth of winter, when he was low on fuel, food, and the cold was unrelenting, he had come pretty close to dying. And he said during one of these moments, he was so close to dying that a woman came to the foot of his bed in his tent in the forest and sort of removed this shawl that was draped over her shoulders and said, are you coming with me? And Knight said, I'm not. And Knight, being a logical man, interjected himself and said, you know, I I realize on one level it was a hallucination, but I really can't, shake it from my head because it was so vivid and so real and maybe that's what happens right at the cusp of death then he said that he was not fit to live in the world and his freedom just proved that he was trapped and i could see him getting agitated he said, like, everyone's just pounding on me and pounding on me and pounding on me. And he knew how to make everything great, which was all he had to do was go f- to his spot in the woods. But he knew that if he 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 knew that if he tried to go live in the woods, he could be put in prison. And he said to me, you know, something's got to give. And, like, his voice caught. I looked at him, and there were just tears coming down his face. And... Uh, I started to cry, and he said, all I can think about doing is on the next really cold day, I'm just gonna walk deep, deep, deep into the forest, and I'm gonna sit there, and I'm gonna get cold, and a lady of the woods is gonna come to me, and this time he's gonna let her take him away. He's gonna kill himself. And he uh, fishes a pocket watch out of his front pocket he's like my mother's going to be home any minute and that's when he said mike i anoint you my biographer right after winter ends you write about me any way you want i'll be happy i'm gonna go with the lady of the woods and he said uh go go and i got in my car and left
1: as he drove away, Mike started to process what he just heard.
2: So I pulled over on the side of the road. I was like, I remember rolling down the windows. It was, a, it was such a gorgeous day. And I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do? You know, do I call the police? Do I call his mom? Do I call his counselor? Do I call, do I just keep it a secret? There was no legal thing I had to do. And he had specifically said, I don't want to see you again. But I... I actually didn't feel like I was a journalist and a subject. I really and truly felt in that moment that he was talking to a friend, or as close as Chris Knight can get to having a friend. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta talk to Chris again.
1: Mike went back the very next day.
2: I'm driving by my way to Chris's house, just all upset and worried and like wondering, and the garage is open and a dude's taking apart an engine and I, ah, there's Chris. And I pull over and the guy lifts his head up. That's not Chris,
1: that's Daniel. Daniel was Chris's older brother. Mike had never met him, and he didn't know if he knew about what Chris had said. And Daniel and I made eye contact for seconds, and I
2: glanced through my windshield, and up at his house, there's Chris standing in the road, just motioning frantically. Come, 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 come. And he taps on my glass. And then motions give me that roll-down-the-window motion. And instead, I opened the door, and he moved back a few feet, and he was furious.
1: Chris began admonishing Mike that by coming back against his wishes, he had done what Chris described as terrible damage. When Mike tried to explain that he was concerned with what Chris had said about the lady in the woods, Chris cut him short.
2: I mean, his face was so closed off and so angry, and we had possibly a 30-second conversation. I was just exploring an idea. Get out of here. Get out of here. I don't want to see you again. And he didn't even let me make a decision. He turned and walked away.
1: Mike flew back to Montana. And then over the next few weeks wrote Chris multiple letters, trying to make sure that he was okay, that he hadn't followed through on his plans.
2: And the time of his threat went by, and he kept showing up to his court appointment, so I knew he was alive. And I didn't expect to hear from him again, but a like a five-line letter one day appears in my
1: mailbox. It was a letter from Chris. As was Chris's custom, it was unsigned. But he had drawn a little flower in one corner, and he wished Mike well.
2: And then on no uncertain terms said,
1: stay away forever. For Chris, it turned out that there's no such thing as a perfect hermitage. There's always some point of contact. He'd claimed that he'd only ever been seen by one other person during his time on the North Pond. But then Mike learned of another encounter. One winter, three generations of ice fishermen, a grandfather, father, and son, had been walking through the woods when they spotted a man in the distance, far off the trail. The man, once spotted, didn't speak, and the father and son grew tense. But the grandfather, an old Frenchman, stayed calm. He said, that must be the hermit who lives in the woods. All we need to do is leave him alone. Then they yelled through the trees so the hermit could hear. Don't worry. We swear to tell no one we saw you. We'll keep your secret. Then the hermit paused and looked at them and bowed before disappearing back into the forest. When Mike asked Chris why he'd never told him about this, Chris told Mike that he hadn't been allowed. He said it was a pact.
0: Thank you so much to Mike Finkel for sharing this story with us. He tells us that as of 2015, Chris Knight was still living a very private life with his family in central Maine. If you want to learn more about Chris's life in the forest, check out Mike's book, The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. You can find it wherever books are sold. We'll have links on our website, snapjudgment.org. The North Pond Hermit song was by Stan Teach. We'll have a link to his work at snapjudgment.org as well. The original score for this story was by Renzo Gorio and Andrew Vickers. It was produced by Joe Rosenberg.